0: minimalists
1: (laughs) you're listening to the minimalists we're here with luke Mm -hmm. burgess author of wanting the power of mimetic desire in everyday life today we're going to be talking about the desires behind our desires Mm. we're going to answer some surprise questions as well But first, let's start with a little segment we call More About Less, where you just read something as a jump-off point to start this little maximal episode here. You have this thing on page 121 called The Joy of Hate-Watching, and in there, you, you sort of, instead of me reading the whole section, I'll let folks at home read it on their own when they pick up the book. Uh, you talk about scapegoating. Even before this section, you talk about scapegoating. And, and the example you use in here is The Apprentice, the, the TV show The Apprentice and Donald Trump. And how we all sort of, you know, everyone has their own opinions about Donald Trump today based on, you know, the last five years, et cetera. But um, on that show, there was something about us, many people, one of the most famous know, popular shows out there watching someone fire someone else. Mm. What about that? Did we, I won't say love cause we misunderstand love. What about that? Did we desire? Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah. Why do we desire seeing other people get axed? Mm. Um, it's a, it's worth really probing that question. So that particular show and a lot of reality TV is all about rivalry. Mm-hmm. All right, like people in crisis, every bo- like a war of all against all. Yeah. I don't really watch reality TV, but, the, but from what I have seen, whether you're on an island or you're in a boardroom or whatever, there's rivalry that creates a crisis and mm-hmm. like the tension builds, the, the pot is about to boil over. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, like, what happens? We need this moment of like catharsis, we need this satisfying moment where somebody can come in and take control and say, you're fired, you're gone, whatever. And it's a formula that works. It's why almost every reality TV show, I mean, back, we're around the same age, so I grew up with like MTV and and, uh, The Real World and stuff like that. This formula's been around forever, and why does it work? Well, the point that I'm making in the book is that it seems that this crisis boiling over, creating maximal tension, and then finding relief through uh, a scapegoat, mm-hmm. through one person that is able to be expelled mm. or or blamed for a problem. Like on The Apprentice, the, the person that is kicked off is usually blamed for like why the project didn't succeed or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it brings this temporary moment of resolution mm-hmm. or peace, Yeah. Not for long, though, just, just until the
1: next episode.
2: Right, it's like a right, faux yeah.
1: piece in a way. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I find, it, so let's talk about the scapegoat. I, wa- I want to talk about where that sort of came from. Mm. And, and then also let's try to fi- maybe find some other examples of you know, hate watching or you know, the, the joy that we get from that schadenfreude. Maybe even cancel culture is an example of this.
3: Yeah, Yeah,
1: so the word scapegoat,
2: I mean, the origin story of this word is fascinating if I could share that. Yeah. yeah. So this comes from you know a feast in ancient Israel in Jerusalem where every year during the high feast of Yom Kippur, uh, the high priest would take two goats. Okay. The first goat would just be sacrificed on the altar to God. The second goat was, it wasn't originally called the scapegoat, that word just came into English in the 1500s. But the second goat was uh, the goat that was used Uh, as a a way to kind of expunge people of their sins. Mm. So the high priest would pray over the goat and symbolically transfer all of the transgressions and sins and rivalries and conflict onto that second goat. (sighs) And then all of the people would collectively drive that goat out into the wilderness, out into the desert, to a, a demon that supposedly lived in the desert.
1: I think this is the premise of a South Park wow. episode. <laughs> right, right,
2: right. <laughs> and it's probably to die, right? right? And that goat would take all of the sins with it. Okay. And oh. it, it provided this illusory sense of peace. Like, oh, something's been done right that goat bore all of our problems and now it's gone now it
3: went out into the desert yes so that's wow. where the word actually comes from man mm. thanks for sharing that i've never even considered to look into why or where the name uh, the word scapegoat came from but that's it's fascinating cuz basically this goat is essentially it's a symbol uh, but this symbol is obviously very powerful. It gives people permission of the village to let go of all their angst and guilt, and and now that goat can carry it.
1: Well wow, that's but it also wild. gives them permission to sort of quote unquote misbehave in a way because mm. if you know you have a scapegoat upon which you can now thrust your your. Uh, bad deeds or habits or sins right now all of a sudden it's like it i think we do this with jesus christ as well right so Mm. so christ what has these phenomenal parables about how to live heaven on earth live in the moment be present be on the mountain etc etc yeah and, and we've turned christ into a scapegoat Uh, of sorts as well you know Mm. he died for our sins so no matter what i do it's because it's all okay because someone else is my my scapegoat essentially
2: yeah Yeah, christ was the ultimate scapegoat
1: right right? who i talk about in the
2: book kind of revealed the scapegoat mechanism and to the fullest extent right because everybody could see that he was innocent and that you know human beings sort of use other people So, the the terrifying part of this, right, is sure, that ritual that I described was an animal, a goat. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, human beings throughout history have. Not limited this mechanism to animals. Mm. You know, we, yeah. we've we, there's we've had child sacrifice, right? Yes. Uh, and we've actually used other people in order to relieve this tension. Mm. Uh, so I talk about in the book this you know h- examples from from history. Some of them are, are mortifying. I mean, the Holocaust is one that immediately comes to mind. Mm. Yeah, where when there is some uh, crisis, some some tension, people always tend to look for an outlet to to transfer the blame. So one way you could think of this, the scapegoat mechanism, it's almost like a, a social invention. The, the name of the chapter in the book is called The Invention of Blame, right. Mm-hmm. right? It's almost like human beings devised this way to relieve themselves from the responsibility of actually having to deal with the problems inside of themselves. So we just transfer it on onto uh, another group, another person, uh, an
3: animal, wh- whatever it is. I mean, this stuff still goes on Right. Yeah. every single day. It's so much easier if it's someone else's fault than my own. It's so much easier to, you know, you got the window mirror effect where either, you know, you're looking in the mirror and you're taking responsibility or you're looking out the window and you're just pointing the finger. And it's a lot easier to point the finger for sure.
1: Right. It's easier in the moment, but it actually, in a perverse way, makes it makes your life much more difficult. Yeah. If you're constantly scapegoating everything. Right. If Mm. if it's. Because the the taking responsibility is more painful in the moment. It it requires a a sort of not that you should take responsibility for everything or ownership, but it it basically says, look, the buck stops here. Mm -hmm. And even if I'm not 100 percent to blame, I'm going to uh, I'm going to take the responsibility of this moment so that we can have less pain, less misery going forward. It's sort of the, I don't know if there's a term for the opposite of scapegoating, but um, maybe it's just ownership or responsibility. Yeah, Yeah. ownership,
2: contrition. Okay. Um, The problem with scapegoating, is that nobody ever thinks that they're doing it. Yes. You know, nobody ever says, I'm gonna make a scapegoat right, right. now and, and relieve myself of the problem. That's what's so difficult about it. Mm-hmm. The people that are canceling people online, like nobody realizes that they're caught up in a scapegoating process and scapegoating mechanism. We always think that our blame or the, like, the problems that we see is, is real. Mm.
3: And that's the, that's the reason that it, it persists and endures. Man, it's, when I think about The Apprentice, it makes me think how, in reality shows do this, uh, especially like they villainize a certain person and they build it up, like you said, the boiling pot, villainize, villainize. And now that villain is finally getting their comeuppance. Right. And like, that's where their the relief comes from. Another, and I don't know if this has anything to do with memetic desire, but another reason I feel like um, the schadenfreude comes into effect or, you know, we like to see people fail. I mean, I can see where... In the past I'm trying to think of something specific um, but essentially you look at someone and you look at their high position like let's take Bobby Brown for example okay yeah all right he was a very successful musician and you look at Bobby Brown and you're like oh man like I want that success and, and and I want that fame and and I want to be that creative but then you look at the big fall that he has had yes and now I can tell myself like oh well you know I don't need that fame anyway because when I would end up like a Bobby Brown if I tried to be famous. So it's almost like we see someone who gets this status, they fail, they fall off the cliff, and it gives us permission to not, like, in a way, like, not try harder in
1: life to do things.
3: Hmm. Does, that, does that resonate at all?
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think what we look for in blame is also we look for excuses. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, mm-hmm. so an excuse for not trying. Right. Well, le- and by the way, you can always find an excuse. But even the best excuse is still an excuse. Mm. No matter how good or cogent your argument is, mm-hmm. like these are these are excuses. Like yeah. m- maybe the, the better question is, well, why want to? Why, why would you want to pursue fame in the first place? Right. Or I-, I understand wanting to, you know, create something that's beautiful or meaningful or artistic. Fame was a, is a byproduct of that. Right. In today's culture, though, quite often fame is the point or the goal. Sure. And mm. what many people
2: try to achieve rather than fame is prestige, like professional prestige. Yeah. yeah. And the root of the word prestige literally means illusion. Ooh. You know the movie yeah. The Prestige right, with yeah. Christian Bale in it? Right. Yeah, it's well. called The Prestige because they're illusionists in the show. Uh-huh. And prestige is this abstract, mimetic desire because how is prestige measured? it can only be measured against other people like right. prestige by definition is a comparison game mm-hmm. and therefore it is always an illusion because there is no point mm. where you ever achieve professional or personal prestige and mm. i think most people wouldn't say that they they want fame or wouldn't openly admit it right but i think everybody would say that they want to be uh, you know esteemed or have some level of prestige or be written up in a magazine or named to some list or something like that that's yeah. something that a lot of people want
3: that's yeah a, most so people is there a such thing as healthy prestigiousness
1: i don't i i mean uh, I you mean, know healthy is another way to say good right and so like or like a responsible amount of prestigious you know i, what I think, think sa- that's also a way to say good yeah. unfortunately like, I, I so what word would you use i i mean i wouldn't i mean i would say i would use good mm. and is there good prestige mm. versus bad prestige i i probably not mm. um it, it, it all depends on what you want right kapil yeah. gupta would say like uh the question isn't like is it good or bad it, the question is like because if i were to say hey ryan when you leave your house this morning do you want to turn left or right yeah well that the, 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 it, it, that spurs more questions right like uh well, it depends on where I want to go. Mm. If I want to go to the grocery store, then I'll turn left. If I want to go to the yoga studio, then I, I, I turn right or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So, so the reason why I ask this question is because, like, someone
3: listening to this who – I know there's someone listening to this who wants uh, to have uh, some, prestigious, some prestige in their life. They, they want to be put up on a pedestal. And I guess the conversation we're having is, is really helping that person look at, like, well, why do you want – Yes. Why do you want this? Right. So you know, uh, I asked the question to see if there's a way that
1: is. Is there a world in which it makes sense to right, exactly. desire prestige? Yeah. Yeah. yeah probably. Like it, so. If for example, um, you want to. You know. In fact, I think uh, you talk about. Um, oh no! No, you don't. T- uh, maybe it's in our book we talk about will mccaskill <laughs> i need to read your book <laughs> yeah i'm reading so many books right now uh will, will mccaskill runs the effect of altruism movement i'm sure you're, you're familiar with yeah. him but um he talks about like sometimes people get misguided because if they're, they're if your true desire is to contribute beyond yourself in a meaningful way and you are say you're a wall street stockbroker right mm-hmm. uh, sometimes sometimes people like they walk away from that career to go like help build huts or wells in Malawi, which sounds noble, sounds like the healthy version Mm -hmm. of of Mm -hmm. doing this, but actually the more effective thing would be, well no, stay in Wall Street, make as much money as you possibly can, Mm. and funnel all of that money outside of your living expenses to Malawi. It's going to be far more effective if your true desire is actually to, bring clean water to Malawi, right? If that's your actual desire. Mm-hmm. Or, but if it's about you know, status, social media points being prestigious, um, not that that's inherently immoral or wrong, but it's understanding, well, why do I want that? Quite often it's because, well, it looks kind of cool on Instagram.
2: Yeah, I think there's a yeah. distinction to be made. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be respected professionally mm-hmm. because you're competent, right, and right. good it's a, it's at what you do. Right, but it's a Hey, so hey. the the difference is the the illusory, abstract, uh, subjective ideas of like what's enough prestige. Mm-hmm. Like that's why some people go into philanthropy; mm-hmm. they they do it for prestige. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I've always been fascinated by people that make anonymous donations. Like they don't even want their name on the building or whatever. Like so, I, it just comes down to asking ourselves why, mm-hmm. like why, why do I, I want this thing. Mm-hmm. Why do I want people to speak about me in a certain way? Mm-hmm. Like, what am I really looking for? Right. I think we have to make a distinction there.
3: Yeah. So yeah, I guess having prestige to me, it sounds like it's a byproduct of doing something that you're very passionate about that, that you have responsibly, you know, and I'm not trying to put value judgment on it, but, um, yeah. It, instead of chasing the the fame, it's mm-hmm. create add value, and then that prestige will will come with that. And maybe that's the way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a, yeah. by, it's a byproduct,
2: yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a secondary effect. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I think the thing that's fascinating about because it is true. I have a mimetic desire to be respected, mm-hmm. right? But that's a type of prison in a way, and, and because now all of a sudden I'm outsourcing my Peace, happiness, contentment, tranquility, freedom to the opinions of other people. And whenever I do that, I'm always going to be disappointed because there's always going to be someone who doesn't respect me. And isn't it odd that we, we often want the respect of those who don't respect us? If you would no just long. understand, yeah, yes. yeah, oh, yeah. There's I'm a book of... out there,
2: and I haven't read it, but it's been recommended to me nine or ten times. Called "The Courage to Be Disliked." Uh-huh. Have either of you read that? I
1: have. It wasn't mm-hmm. very well written. Yeah. So I, but I love the title of it.
2: So th- we can just stay there, then. We'll just uh-huh. stay with the title. Yeah. 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 So I think there's something to that, like the courage to be disliked. Uh-huh. Like, are we actually okay with people, you know, not responding to us or not not liking us uh-huh. when we're just you know, being who we are, right, right. and, and yeah. being the best version of ourselves. Are we okay with that? If the answer is no, if we really, if it drives us crazy, if somebody doesn't like us, like, why is that? Yes, yeah. right.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, just you know, doing the, the minimalists for the last ten years, going on eleven years. Can you mm-hmm. believe that, man? Um, the way that I react to criticism today is very different from five years ago. Very different from ten years ago. And there is uh, there's something that you know when you i don't know when you're sharing a philosophy when you're when you're sharing an opinion whatever it may be and people criticize you for me at least it has helped me really look in the mirror and ask myself like oh is this critique is this valid is this something i should actually consider and you know one or two things happen i look at it and i'm like you know what i'm going to look at that as feedback and i'm going to change you know i'm going to do things a little bit differently or I can look at it and I can be like, "Oh no, that's just a seagull flying by, and shitting on what I do and and, and flying away." Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's there certainly is something th- there with um, yeah having the courage to be disliked. Josh, I want to say, man, the <laughs> the prison mm-hmm. is 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 the human brain, <laughs> like no, yeah, the mind. The, yeah, the mind is like of the the mind. Yes, sure. absolutely, man. I mean, it's like the human experience is we yeah multiple prisons. I can see. Yeah, you know? yeah,
1: I think it all emanates from the mind ultimately, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so. When we're talking, there are there are some mystics who can transcend all of that. Respect is, is irrelevant to them. Um, even even desi- they they recognize desire as a form of attachment. There's no such thing as a quote unquote good or healthy attachment. Mm. Attachment is all always birthed out of some sort of chase, and, and th- therefore um, that 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 chase is always a type of removal of freedom it's a type of prison yeah. in, in a way a- anytime we are chasing something it is now it, there are all, only a few savants of living who who cannot just understand this intellectually like ryan and i might understand this intellectually but live it viscerally right. and not not be concerned although i will say ryan you bring up a good point 10 years ago when someone seagulled us mm. and they swooped in they crapped on what we were doing and it was my first inclination was well that's the person whose mind i need to change yeah, yeah. me too i don't have no I, I, I have no illusion of that now right i don't want prestige from that that person mm-hmm. and i think part of that has to do with just real uh, a deeper understanding that like that person uh, is not trying to bring any value to the table themselves um, it's the joy of hate watching it's back to that right they're getting some sort of joy from that and so in a weird way I'm like, oh, that's, isn't that neat? They're getting some sort of joy from that. Now, it's taken, me, it's taken me a decade to get to, to where I can do that comfortably and sort of smile at it and just be like, as you say, and, yeah. and, and be able to like almost be happy for that person's um, moment of pleasure that they get from, from crapping on the work. Well,
2: here's the connection to mimetic desire. We have a love-hate relationship with our models. So it may have been that you guys were models to whoever this person was in some way. They probably aspired in some way, maybe, yes. right? They, they wanted something, right? Yes. So our models are people that ha- we think have something that, that we might want. So mm. we're imitating these models, which de facto turns us into their rivals in some way.
1: How so? Hmm.
2: So if there's if I have a model of desire, so somebody that I kind of aspire to be more like, yes, uh, let me just try to make it concrete right now. Uh, let's take another author
1: uh-huh. mm-hmm.
2: uh, who whose book is well received, who I think is you know thoughtful and is doing something positive in the world, and gets some accolade or something like that uh, i because I, i'm he's my model of desire. I now start paying attention to the th- what he's doing what he's saying you know the accolades that he's receiving yeah, sure. and without even knowing it the very person that i admired has now become a form of of rival to me mm. um and because he's my model uh i, I have like a love a love hate relationship like i i like this author i admire him but at the same time um, if I don't realize that I'm in this kind of rivalrous relationship, it also kind of drives me crazy because we're different people and I'm constantly measuring myself according to, to him or her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it creates this weird, almost like split personality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. so mimetic desire often leads into conflict and rivalry and we don't
3: even know it. So maybe it's like you have a role model that you look up to or, or you look at what they have and you're like, oh, I want to have what they have. But then there's a few things. Let's say you're a, you know, you're know, a stark Christian and this person is an atheist. Well, now you hate them because they have exactly what you want, but uh, a belief that they have isn't a belief that you have. So uh, it's just like this game that we're playing with ourselves, like where it's like, well, do I have to be an atheist to get what that person wants?
2: You don't don't hate anybody unless you care deeply about them. Yeah. Right.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, if you're indifferent to them, then then
2: you wouldn't hate them. So, like, Mm. clearly there's something going on there at the level of desire. Like this person is a model for you in some way. Mm. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk. Are are there some cultures? Because I'm thinking about the, the rivalry thing. And I remember doing a sauna up in Montana, and we were living in Montana with uh, an American Indian uh, named Tom, and and he told me that you know, I, uh, Americans view competition as sort of this noble thing, but to us, in our culture, competition is a mental illness, and and because if in our col- in our tribe, uh, the Black Blackfoot tribe, if one person wins we all win if they lose i lose right and so it's a it's more of a your communal sort of thing and it seems to me that mimetic desire probably plays a different role not that it doesn't exist in a culture like that but would you posit that it that it it has a different role in their culture
2: i would and this is a, a fascinating thing to explore the way that mimetic desire manifests its way in different cultures and different parts of the world probably manifests itself in different ways in women than in men, uh, and I, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I absolutely do think that's true, and I think that we Americans do have a bit of a cult of competition. Yeah. It's almost yeah. as if, if somebody doesn't want something then that we want, mm-hmm. if we don't have a rival competing for it, we begin to doubt ourselves we start Mm -hmm. thinking like, well, maybe that thing's not as valuable as I thought it was because nobody else wants it, right? Mm -hmm. Like the girl that I'm pursuing, like nobody else seems to be interested in her. I start to kind of second guess myself Mm -hmm. or or some, you know, career goal. Well, why doesn't anybody else want that? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like we're addicted to competition. If we don't have the competition, we're like, well, I, I must be wanting the wrong thing.
1: Right, yeah. or, or then we start to believe the other person's defective. Yeah. So I, I remember Ooh, this when yeah. Ryan and I were first uh, exploring this minimalism thing back in the late oddies. And I walked away from the corporate world in 2011. People didn't, they thought something was wrong with me. Like either A, I had to be suicidal. B, I had to have like gone crazy, lost my mind because I had achieved this level of ostensible success, right? Mm. And and it was the thing that they desired. It was a mimetic desire, for sure, and and it was for me as well. But as soon as I started questioning that desire, it it was either one of two things. It was like, they could either start to question it as well, and maybe it would even strengthen their desire. Maybe they had a true desire for it, that's fine. Or they can dismiss me as as being kooky, and now all of a sudden, their desire stays intact. Now, Mm. did you leaving cause anybody else to leave? Yes. Yeah. Several sure. people. Yeah. 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 Uh, our good friend Stan, who's no longer with us, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he left the same month I did. Mm-hmm. And then there were several other people after that who, who eventually sort of found their, they, they escaped from the, the prison of memetic desire. Yeah. Uh, at least that one particular sure. memetic mm-hmm. desire. Man, there's something there too with uh, what you were saying, Luke, about
3: uh, I don't, like if you're in a race, but you're the only person in the race. You get first place if you win but if no one else was interested in the race then there is this there's something in uh, subconsciously that makes us feel like well was that race really
1: worth running
2: mm. yeah, like wh- what's where's the satisfaction coming from
1: right mm. yeah mm. yeah there's this great book called um the body of the motion through space by lionel shriver it's one of my favorite novels ever she's the most cogent writer you know, she's uh, her, and her her vocabulary is is unbelievable, but she the way it's so precise. But in that book, she she talks about how it's a, almost a book about mimetic desire uh, from, but understanding from these sort of fictional characters. It's a husband and wife retired couple, um, and she is sort of fitness obsessed, but she's never understood like the people who run marathons or or join bike clubs or whatever, for, because for her it's always been a personal pursuit, and she almost has this sort of Internal disdain for people who have mimetic desire and and I think we all have that to a certain extent but mostly because we can't see how we're all also influenced Mm. by the culture It's impossible not to be just because, I mean, we use the same language and therefore we're going to have many similar desires just based on that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's funny because it reminds me, look, when I hit 35,
2: all my friends started wanting to run marathons. And it's like, ah, yeah. this is what you do when you turn 35. <laughs> you got to go run a marathon or something yeah. like that. It sounds like a book I have to read. Well, the beauty of, of this and, and why my book, well, it wasn't easy to write. Books are hard to write. Yeah. But in a certain sense, like a lot of people are writing about, and talking about mimetic desire, they're just not using the word. Right, yeah. right. I mean, I'm just giving a name to something that is is all around us. Right. I mean, a lot of great movies are filled with it. Seinfeld filled with mimetic desire. If you right. now, now that you know it, right? Like, go watch a couple episodes of Seinfeld. The Big Salad in particular. Oh yeah. Very, very mimetic. Yeah. Um, you know, you'll start seeing it all around you. So, it kind of, it, in a in a certain way, it made my job easy.
1: Mm. Nice. Mm we got some uh, surprise questions. Before we get to those, though, I don't remember. I was doing some prep for this episode. I don't know if this was in your book or I was just reading it somewhere else. Uh, the Diderot effect. Are you familiar with the Diderot effect? I'm not. Okay. So I've, I've I got the definition here. Obtaining a new possession often creates a spiral of consumption, which leads you to acquire more new things. Uh, a different philosopher named, uh, I forget his first name, but Diderot was wh- his name. So basically, when we, we buy something, uh, I think of the, the example like if you buy a really nice piece of furniture, but you have a bunch of crappy furniture at home, now Ooh. all of a sudden you're like, oh, now, now all this other stupid furniture. I, I, in fact, I see this right now. This, so the Diderot effect, when we're in this temporary studio space, mm-hmm. which thank God we're going to be out of soon, um, but as soon as we've started building out our new space, it makes me even want to be out of this space even more because the new space is beautiful. We're, we're working with a set designer, and now every time I see one of our YouTube videos that are filmed in here, I'm like, "Yeah, mm. that was fine for a period of time, but like, it's not like the new space, right?" And so, uh, as a result, we end up buying things that our previous selves never needed to feel happy or fulfilled. So, mm. that that's the Diderot effect, where we consume one thing, but it's almost like uh, well, what what is a good metaphor for this? Like if you um, if you just get like uh, if you drink something that makes you thirstier in a way, something that, that's right. like a di- diuretic. Now all of a sudden you need to drink more and more. And, and uh, consumerism is obviously an unquenchable thirst, mm-hmm. but but the Diderot effect shows that quite often it can turn into this this domino effect. That first purchase as innocuous or anodyne, as it might seem at the time, mm-hmm. leads us to desiring a whole bunch of other things. Is there? Do you know anything about what might be behind that phenomenon?
3: Mm.
1: Well, I'm hearing this for the first time, but the first thing that it makes me think of is
2: the reflexivity of mm-hmm. desire and kind of the reflexivity of reality itself. Mm-hmm. What I mean by reflexiveness, just that the the act of like moving to some new reality like you know you you drink the soda or the diuretic or the caffeine or whatever um, after you've done that you're not in the position that you were in before and the 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 the, the new reality is is, is, is different. So you have to evaluate it by completely different standards. Yes. So it's almost as if... So the reflexivity of desires is like if we're all on the same trampoline and, you know, one person jumps or one person moves. Right. Uh, there's just no way that it's not going to affect us in in some way. Right. So this is true of physics, but it's also true to our, our desires, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's constantly... Um, we're not neutral observers to these things, right? We're like sure. caught up in it and we're, we're affected in, in real time. So we can't stand back and make calculations about what we think will make us happy because the next day when we wake up, reality is different. And it's so easy to forget about that.
3: Mm. Yeah. The Diderot effect, for me, it kind of puts an accent on the saying, uh, comparison is the killer of joy because that's yes. really what's happening right right oh, you have some you buy a new thing and now you're comparing it to everything else right and, and and that's really um that's what this whole conversation about mimetic desire is it's about these comparisons that we're constantly doing
1: yeah in, yeah. in our last film less is now on netflix they talk about or annie she talked about the vertical expansion of our reference group, which which is a fancy way of talking about keeping up with the Joneses, Mm. basically, right? So this comparison being the Thief of Joy, all of a sudden, your neighbor gets the new Mustang, or we're in LA, the new Lamborghini, and uh, now all of a sudden, it's like, Oh, I didn't know I needed a Lamborghini Man. but now I need the Lamborghini even though I, I know intellectually I don't but there's something in me that feels as though I do and yeah, so right. it, in a way now though that we're comparing ourselves to everything everyone we've never met. Mm. It's on, on our Instagram feeds. It's on television. It's on the billboards. It's on the four to 10,000 ads we see every day. We're comparing ourselves and our desires. The, the mimetic desires are created by our culture. Mm. And the Diderot effect is simply saying, well, be careful about what you bring into your life because it might make you want to bring other things into your life it'll as make, well. It'll make you start comparing other things that you didn't compare
3: before, you know, you use the Lamborghini example, but I think it's even worse when it's something that we actually can afford. Like I look at, um, yeah, I don't, I'm not on Facebook anymore. You know how someone, you know how someone quit Facebook? Don't worry. They'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, uh, a, a certain, um, old friend of ours, a professional wrestler, <laughs> uh-huh. him and his wife got a Hellcat, which is like, it's a, it's a very fast, I think Dodge is what it is. And yeah, long story short, I'm not even into sports cars. But because I look up to that friend, that old friend so much and his wife, like they got a great relationship, they got a kid. I mean, I'm, I I in a lot of ways envy their life and they get the Hellcat and now I'm like, well, that's within reach. Do I need to get a Hellcat? Like I could totally I might be able to afford a Hellcat payment. So it's it's interesting like when yeah, when we see those things and I think that's why social media is so dangerous because there are so many solutions on there that are within our Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, you know, maybe hundred dollar reach that
1: isn't, it's not like Lamborghini. It's a lot easier to obtain. And we see it everywhere. Like we see it in the feed. We see it when you hop on Instagram. All of a sudden, there are so many things that are, it makes it accessible. Mm. But just because something is accessible doesn't mean it's going to improve your life. Well,
2: the things that are more accessible are, frankly, more dangerous and I think lead to more of the Diderot effect. So, Think about it like this. Like, if you ask most people, like, who are you more jealous of, or who are you paying more attention to um, in terms of what they get and what they want? Jeff Bezos? Or like the person that lives next door that works in a similar industry that just happened to get a new car. It's going to be the second person, right? right? Because like proximity matters and accessibility matters. Mm -hmm. And those are more powerful models to us than the kind that are kind of outside of our world that seem to exist in a different sphere. Sometimes these can be our friends, as you said, Ryan. I mean, the closer that people are to us, the more similar they are to us the more kind of powerful hold
1: they have over us
2: and the more we care about what they want.
1: Mm. Let's hop into some of these surprise questions we have here. Podcast Sean threw some together for us. Francis has a question for us. How do I address my longing for things
3: that are impossible to attain, like being young again or bringing back
1: loved ones who have passed? You know, I don't know that this is – Maybe it is a mimetic desire, but sometimes it's a fascinating sort of thought experiment because sometimes our mimetic desires are impossible to attain. And In fact, one would argue that they're always impossible to attain to some extent because if you have a thousand friends on Facebook and they all have their own desires and they're being thrust upon you, all of a sudden, well, I can't attain all of those, so it is impossible in some sense. But there are some things like being young again. Mm. or bringing back a loved one who has passed away, yeah, that's not literally possible, but maybe it's interrogating the desire to understand what do I want behind that? I think this has to do with,
2: with going all the way to the bottom of that desire. So let's take being young again. Mm. I wanna be younger again too. Uh-huh. What do I really want? I want that wonder and playfulness that came with being a kid, yes. right? Like I think that what I really want is, is that, And, like, what can I do in my life to kind of cultivate that sense of wonder and awe and the world's this, like, wonderful, amazing place? And we can lose some of that as we get older, we get a little bit jaded. I think that that desire to be younger has something to do with that. Mm. And there are probably – there's probably some things that I'm in control of in my life today that can help me – pursue that good desire I mean that's there's nothing wrong with that desire so maybe it's you know having kids what Rick like, will help with that I don't have kids yet but I imagine that they'll probably make me feel younger or give me some of that excitement so again I think it's you know where where is that desire leading and what is it that thick desire what is it that you, you really want about being young yeah mm-hmm. and the yeah. same with
1: the, the one loved one who's passed like my mom yeah I would give anything to spend an, another day with her right mm-hmm. and and what does that really... What, what does that tell me? It's like that our connection with the people that we love the most is very precious, right? And, and yet we often... Well, I often treat it as though it's not, right? And, and all, all those days that mom was around, I, didn't, I, I wouldn't have given up anything to be with her. Yeah. And in a weird way, we want what we can't have, uh, but understanding behind what's behind it I think that's that's powerful because then then you can still get what you want without getting what you want
3: yeah the thing that came to mind for me was
1: having gratitude for
3: the things that you long for that you will never be able to have so you know uh, when I think about the desire to be young you can be grateful for having that experience and you know I often find myself trying to find gratitude and growing older I mean there are cert- I care less about what people think I uh, make more responsible decisions, um, you know, so forth and so on. There are some things about getting older that I really like. Um, it's the same thing with you know a lost loved one. It's having that gratitude of even being able to have that experience in life. Mm-hmm. So in, in in a way, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe a little bit more gratitude could help people get past. Yeah, I those think desires. When,
1: we, when we're talking about gratitude, we it's, it's stepping back and, and there's some part of sort of acceptance for the way things are. Right. Mm. Um, as opposed to the way I wish things were, because yeah. that that's also making me miserable. I mean, that is what desire, uh, quite often desire is just making us miserable and at the same time making us, it's pleasing us when I- in the moment you know we had the question earlier during the the minimal where someone was talking about like oh i, I yearn to get back to you know, to those those feelings but i think that's sort of a nostalgic view right it's a rose color rear view mirror where it's like all of uh, we remember all the great times but we don't remember all the the tedium the boredom or the the pain that's associated with that nostalgia it's almost as though we pluck out the things that we want to to carry with us and that's fine But going back doesn't mean you would go back to just the quote unquote good times.
2: I think gratitude is
1: critical. You know, and Ryan, as you were
2: sharing that, it made me think of this idea of of wanting what we have, Mm. which we can also do. Yes, Like cultivating a deeper desire for the things that are already in our lives. Your spouse would be an example of that, right? If Mm. you're married. not that you have your spouse but you know what i mean like you're in this relationship right and part of you know marriage is is cultivating a deeper and deeper desire and that's one of the beautiful parts about it mm-hmm. right so we often think about desire being the things that you know we are out there but there's things that are close to us mm-hmm. already part of our lives like how can we go deeper into that and make that even stronger
1: yeah one thing that's worked for hmm. me in that respect is my wife and i are both Extreme introverts, and so we spend quite a bit of time apart. Uh, We've probably spent about, about half of our time apart. I know that's odd for most people because it's not—it's uh, not the sort of uh, mimetic belief uh, uh, that you know one should always be under the same roof with each other, et cetera. Um, and yet, by placing something at a distance, something you quote-unquote have, as, as you said, uh, by placing it at a distance, it gives you that space you need for desire. It's the louis ck quote when he said that uh i'm gonna butcher this but um uh, distance plus time oh, i'm gonna screw it up um anyway basically what i'm trying to get at is when we throw something we, we, when we when we place something at a distance it gives us the space that we need to the adequate space to desire again
2: yeah and mm. you know
1: we're recording this you know
2: during the pandemic, I think we're coming out the other side of it, but you have to wonder like what the lockdown has done to desires when it comes to Mm. relationships, Oh, right? Like when people now, like maybe they were traveling for business and, you know, they they spent half of their time apart or whatever, Right. at least went into the office, you know, and then met and got together for dinner. Like what effect has that had on desire between people and relationships?
1: Because I think there's, there's something to that. Yeah, yeah there, there's of something the to the, the, the mystique, yeah. the, the mystery, the, the, the separateness, and also the need to be a separate human being, yeah. autonomy, right? And, and, and when you remove that, you know, Bex and I, uh, we, we do a podcast together, my wife and I, it's called How to Love. And on that podcast, uh, one of the things we talk about is how there is no relationship between the two of us. It's, there's me and there's her, and, but there isn't this third entity called a, a relationship. Uh, we don't come together like Voltron to 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 make this other thing. We respect the individuality of each other, and we come together. It amplifies or enhances each of us. But it's not the Jerry Maguire line of "you complete me." No, if anything, you incomplete me. And and in understanding that, I'm already a complete whole person, right? And if you if you make me do something to change who I am as a person, that would be incompleting me in a way. And so we work really hard to to not try to change each other, to afflict one another with um, mm. with our own desires. Although it's virtually impossible in any sort of quote unquote relationship, but at the same time respecting the other person, not needing them to be the person I want them to be, yeah. but. Having gratitude for the person they are. Yeah, made me think of a
3: new tagline for the minimalists. The minimalists helping you want what you already have. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: Michelle has a question for
3: us. Michelle wrote in, "Is wanting things inherently bad?" When well, Josh would tell you that good or bad is a uh, is is nonsense. It is nonsense. <laughs> <but> yeah. <laughs> the minimalist goal for me is to only own things that bring me joy and to replace things when needed with more sustainable items.
1: You know, the, what stood out to me here, Ryan, was not the inherently bad thing, because I think we've already sort of covered that, it's not inherently good or bad, right? Right. Uh, and so, is one thing thing's inherently bad? No. Is one thing thing's inherently good? No. Okay, well we're past that. I, what really stood out to me here at the end, of my minimalist goal, minimalism is not a destination, right? <laughs> and, and so like there is, it's, it's simply a vehicle quite often we mistake the vehicle for the destination yeah a- and it it is a it is a way that to simplify your life to get rid of the superfluous to focus on what's important mm-hmm. however uh, owning things that bring me joy and to replace things when needed with more sustainable items there's a sort of myth that that well i'll i'll buy sustainable items well that uh, to me sustainable item is almost an oxymoron in a way (laughs) like the most sustainable item is the one that's left on the shelf Mm. and so i understand the spirit behind this question i respect the fact that wanting to be intentional with the things we bring into our life so we're not causing destruction for the planet bravo for that but also uh i think there's been this whole industry mimetic desire has certainly led to uh, the the green washing of consumerism just because something is quote unquote sustainable doesn't mean that you need it that you want it that it is inherently good yeah yeah
2: you know i i heard a, a little bit of sort of marie kondo in, in that question right like does mm. it spark joy if it does i keep it but yeah. sure. stuff and things are, are really you know maybe i guess they could spark joy but i mean it's not going to endure right mm. yeah it's not stuff that's going to do it so one of the f- things that I like to try to focus on is not just decluttering my house and getting rid of the things that I don't need, but decluttering my desires.
3: Yeah. Right? It's a, yeah, that's, that, that's what this made me think of too. It's like desire, desires, whatever, it's its, it's, 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 its own prison. And not having desire is also its own prison. <laughs> so we really have to filter through all of these desires that we have and that's why josh and i talk about minimalism so much because we feel like this is a tool that people can use to filter through those desires um yeah desires aren't good or bad right but they're there
1: yes they they are there and and they're they're going to be and and understanding where they come from will help us better will help us better will, will equip us to live the life we want to live align our actions with our values basically yeah you uh, you all append what you said ryan with the the not having desires is a prison i I don't know about that but i would say that you're absolutely right in the sense that the desire to not have desires might even be the ultimate prison yeah
3: it makes me think about and the reason why i say that um that not having desires is its own prison because like Willem's question in the minimal episode Uh uh-huh you know, he's like, I don't have those, those desires anymore. And I really want, I mean, he's putting himself in his own prison. Uh-huh. So maybe it makes me think of like, a, I don't know, like a drug addict, you know, like I, you know, the drugs that I used to do, I used to tell myself like, oh, well, people like me better when I, when I'm on these, when I'm on these substances and I can be, I can be myself more when I'm on these substances. So it, it's, um, it's kind of having the experience of, of desiring, mm-hmm. and then when you take it away, like that's that's what creates the
1: prison. Yeah,
3: does that make sense?
1: It, it, it does. I, when I, when I, when the, but I think with Willem in particular, his his desire—he still had a desire. He had a desire to have more desires, which uh, we can set aside the irony for a second, <laughs> and, and we can recognize that. Well, that 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 becomes its own type of prison, and also mm-hmm. the desire to have no desire is itself a desire and it just heaping more desires onto your plate yeah. I I think there are probably a few a few Mozarts of living you know the Buddha and, and, and Jesus um, who maybe were able to transcend desire right mm-hmm. but for the average person here the, all of us in this room for sure and the people listening the vast majority of the people listening to this virtually everyone listening to this you, you have desires right and so the question isn't do I get rid of my desires? Do I get the "quote unquote" right desires? It's understanding the place of, from which they emanate. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to build awareness, right, in myself and in the culture about the role that desire plays yes. in consumerism, in politics, in rivalry. Mm-hmm. Like, if we understand the the origin of these things as coming from. Mimetic desire. It just gives us a new frame. It's not the only frame, right? But it, it's a mental model that just helps us understand the world a little bit better, and hopefully ourselves. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I agree. It, it is a, both of those things are prisons. And and you know, desiring not to have desires. I mean, you know, it's desiring not to be human because as humans, we just have desires. I mean, you'd be dead. Yeah. Right. right? And to not have desires is kind of ennui. It, it's uh-huh. you know, it's kind of a, a symptom of being. Of being depressed, and sometimes there's just a part of life that comes with accepting where we're at. Like, yeah, I, I feel like I don't want anything right now. Can I just be in this place yeah. and just like and just be here mm-hmm. and just recognize that this is a season of my life where, yeah, I'm not you know passionate about uh, a whole lot, and maybe I just need to sit with that and sink down into it for a while, rather than trying to generate desires, which could lead me into some
1: highly mimetic, like, weird behavior. <laughs> yes. Yeah, talk about some of those mm. behaviors because um, all of a sudden we, we it, it strikes me of, like, when you see trendy clothes, which, by the way, trendy just means soon to be out of style, um, and when I see, like, I'll see, it and rarely do I see this, but I'll see, like, a, an old man, a man who is older than, let's say, 65, right? And, and he's, like, just, dripping from in Gucci and and you're like well wait a minute what you're dressed like you're 22 you but you have but a 22 year old who has the finances of a 65 year old has the ability to to wear all of these things and I'm just like what went wrong here yeah uh and it's not I don't mean that as a a judgment I don't mean morally wrong either I mean meant like what possessed the person to do this I'm trying to actually understand their desires in a way I know other you know we we have a friend Erwin McManus who was on our last film he's been on the podcast a few times and he's probably the most stylish person I know and he's in his 60s but it's not the he is an utterly unique individual. He yeah. runs his, his own clothing company because he started making clothes because he couldn't find clothes that he liked that other people made. Mm-hmm. And you realize, like, oh, okay, well, th- this is something a little bit different. Not to say there's no mimetic desire in that. There probably still is. But there's a, a greater degree of awareness than the man who's his same age who is essentially wearing the, the meme of style,
2: yeah. Th- there's this kind of paradox. I don't know if you guys have found this in your life at all, but it's almost like the the more people have the, the more bizarre things they start wanting. So. Yeah. Yes. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Like oh, yeah. Like weird hobbies they take up or whatever. So cause you mentioned the 60 year old man that had the resources, um, that the 20 year old doesn't. Right. Yeah. Um, so it, in, in a way, like the more success we have, we can begin adopting, um, just stranger and stranger models of desire because we have to keep reaching for new things. Yeah. And
3: and this is, this is a human problem. Uh, you know, you talked about it earlier that if we didn't have desires, we would die. Like we have to have certain desires, but that falls into, um, yeah, into clothing, into the car we drive, into uh, the vacations we go to. But I also think about, you know, like we never would have went to the moon, if it wasn't for desires. Yes. We we wouldn't uh you know be able to uh, have a longer lifespan if it wasn't for, you know, the desire to live. So, yeah. What do you th- mean by that? Well, I mean like just meta like medical advancements and things like that that yeah. we are, you know, that that we have technologies that we've developed. Um
1: so our lifespan is virtually the same as it's been for a very yeah, long time. Yeah, as soon
3: as I said that I was like, I know Josh is gonna like push against this. Yes. Well, uh, I just don't
1: wanna I mean I'm, I'm fine to have the
3: discussion about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I what agree with what, what you I'm saying is is less people uh, less people are dying from certain, like pol, uh, polio, for example. Yeah. Like, less people are dying from that these days sure. because
1: of these advancements that we made. I yes. definitely, by the way, I'd be dead without medical advancements. So I, I want to be right, clear that yeah. I'm not anti medical right. ava- advancement.
3: Right. What you're talking about is the, uh, the, the infant mortality affecting the lifespan. The you gotta, Right. Yeah. That's not really what I w- that's not what I'm trying to say. What right. I'm trying to say is like, there are certain things that we desire to fix. That um, we wouldn't be where we are today. We wouldn't have what we have today if it wasn't for those those desires. But in the same token, mm-hmm. that's why we have Facebook. That's why we got Instagram. Mm-hmm. That's that's why uh, we are we have these comparison machines. Mm-hmm. Is in, in, because of these desires. So yeah, it's it's again it's a human problem of always wanting to advance to the next thing. It's it makes me think about you know people with like sexual kinks. Mm-hmm. It's like they what they've done. They have maxed out. The the one on one sex and now they're like oh now I need to move to this oh and now I need to move to this fetish because because that's gonna give me the pleasure that I'm that I'm going after
1: right and there's nothing wrong with that no not, 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 not no. to kink shame anyone no um, of course not uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but but understanding like yeah I it, it, and Bex and I dive in a lot into the the sort of different kinks and un- trying to understand like what is behind this this mm-hmm. desire when we do our our podcast because it's about parenting and sex and relationships and and what I found there is. It is my knee-jerk reaction to 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 otherize someone, right? It's yeah, like because oh. I would never do that. Yeah, How oh, could you're, they do that? you're into feet, and it's like feet, feet are stinky. Why yeah, would yeah. I ever touch someone else's right. foot? Right. Like, I want you to spit in my mouth, but I don't want you to right. kiss my feet. Right. Exactly. It's like well, what? Like yeah. okay, th- these are all the sort of uh, these are desires that we have, and and maybe it could be it, sometimes it's predicated on trauma, and, and and so trauma can even play a role in what we desire or what we are. Yeah, what, what we are repulsed by sure. uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, without
2: desires, there'd be no innovation. Even innovation yes. in sex. Okay? Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Right, yeah. and and so innovation comes from somebody somewhere, like wanting something that doesn't exist and and wanting it enough to sacrifice, you know, financial resources and time and effort and and all of those things to bring it into being in some way. Now there's good innovation and there's bad innovation. Sure. Right? I'd argue a lot of social media has been bad innovation. Mm. Like innovation is just that word is ambiguous to me, right? right? Like we have this kind of cult of innovation where it's like more innovation, less imitation. Mm. Well, we can innovate like some things that make make us miserable friendly, yes. yeah. right? And yeah. we
1: still are like happy that we're we usually innovating.
2: Do. Yeah. We, we, we often do. I mean, yeah.
1: So a friend of ours, Chris Ryan, uh, wrote a book called Civilized to Death. I'd love to connect you with him. He has a great podcast. Uh, he, he wrote the book Sex at Dawn, which is what he's most well-known for, but I think Civilized to Death is a much better book, even though it's not, as, you know, it's not a cult classic like that first one was. Uh, but to me, it, you know, the, so the, the, the subtitle of the book is, what is the price of progress? And it's really talking about these innovations, right? Like, because they are seemingly good. And, and so like when Ryan says like, yeah, yeah we wouldn't have gone to the moon yes i think i think someone like kapil gupta would say so what Mm -hmm. um it's not that it's good or bad to go to the moon but ryan is right without these desires we wouldn't have gone to the moon now whether or not that is a worthwhile pursuit that's an individual question right i would never want to go to the moon personally that doesn't seem like there's much to do up there and yet for someone they were so driven that they couldn't not do it and to me that's what's interesting that desire of, because the, the tr- our true desire is like, what is the thing that I can't not do that I'm going to be so devoted to? Because, you know, we, we even hear people use these different terms. These, they categorize it. They say, I was born to do this or, or, or this is my life's mission or purpose. This is what I'm meant to do. And all we're really saying is like, man, I don't know why, but I'm so driven to do this thing. That it's the thing I can't not do. I can't shake this desire. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And no matter how much I scrutinize, and if you if you dig deep enough, then you might better understand it, and that might continue to sort of compel you forward even more. And it's not that oh well, yeah, well why 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 go to the moon? Yeah, I might say that, but someone else is like. Why wouldn't I go to the moon? Yeah. yeah. Well,
2: not now it's going to Mars, right? I right. was having this
1: conversation with with Claire, my fiance the other
2: day and it's like, "Hey, like if Elon Musk is looking for volunteers to go to Mars, like is that something that you would want to do?" And yeah. she's like, "Hell no. Like why would I want to go <laughs> to Mars yeah. and live in this dusty barren planet?" But you know what? Yeah. And I wouldn't either. Yeah. Right. So I will not be a volunteer, but there are some people, I'm telling you, when the time comes, there will be people lined up. Yes. There will yeah. be a wait list of a million people. Yes. And, and it's and worth for asking, what, where does, end for different reasons. Yeah, for so sure. some people
1: are like, they'll do it for the gram, right? I just, <laughs> what, what can I do on it? Let me show this off. Like, Can I post on Instagram from Mars? Yeah. That's the question. <laughs> yeah, I want, I want significance. So some people do it for significance. Some people mm-hmm. will do it for exploration. Mm-hmm. And so there are even different desires behind that main sort of desire, right? Mm-hmm. We got a couple more questions yeah. here, and then I want to. I'll wrap up at the the end of this episode we by talking some, about some of our own desires. We
3: are some just curious, curious beings, Indeed. and and that curiosity creates the the strangest desires because it is strange to want to go to Mars. Right? There's nothing there. Right? Like, I mean, d- just to get the view of from a different planet. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's we yeah. That's it's curiosity again. It's well, it goes back to um, who asked uh, whether it's good or bad to desire things. Michelle, yeah, Michelle. So it just shows that like there is no good or bad. It it just is, and we got to learn how to how to filter through it all. Gwen has a question for us. How do we help our kids understand desire, especially with regards to marketing versus true wants? This reminds me of a question we got from an 11 year old at one of our events, uh-huh. and I had no idea how to answer. She was like. She was like, I know that I don't need an iPhone. I know I don't need the latest iPhone. She's like, but I really, really want it. Can you help me not want it?
1: You're like, hey, girl, have you heard of memetic
3: desire? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Teach them young. Yeah. Them young. So yeah. what would you say to that 11-year-old, Luke? I'm just curious. Like, is there? Do you have any advice for for that person? For an 11-year-old that wanted a phone. A phone. That realizes like they don't need it, but they have this memetic desire of of having it. So how how does someone... specifically a kid how do you explain to a how do you help a kid understand memetic desire maybe that's a better way of of a better question to ask
2: I I mean my instinct is I take them to Montana and take them fly fishing with me for a week and then at the end of that week ask them if their desire for that phone is the same as it was a week earlier
3: I love that man because that makes me think about how you know as parents and it's I love getting uh, giving parental advice when I have no kids (laughs) but you know uh, parents their kids do what they do their kids, they don't do what they say, they do what they do. So as a parent, if you bring your kid to Montana and you're showing them the joy in that, that's much different than a parent at home sitting on their phone. And maybe the parent is, is using it in a way that they think is responsible in the sense of, well, I'm using it for work and I'm, I'm keeping up with my social media accounts because you know I'm an entrepreneur and I gotta keep up with that. Well, the child is seeing that mm-hmm. and they're mimicking that.
1: I can tell you one thing I would do with Ella is I would talk to her about the why. So the same thing that Luca has been doing here is interrogating the desire. Now I would mm. customize that for Ella, who's eight, and and I often you know, ask her why. It's the pro, it's the reason she asks why so much is because we we ask her why as well. I mean, mm. understanding what you want, because quite often I find that she freezes up. She's never even thought about why she wants what she wants. But of course. Aren't we the same? Yeah, we're just giant eight-year-olds, mm. never sitting back, questioning, never stepping back, questioning our desires. We're simply, I want the iPhone, just like the 11-year-old, the eight-year-old, the, the one-year-old that is mesmerized by the shiny object. Mm. We're the same. We're acting on impulse. In Love, People Use Things, there's a section in there about drunk shopping. So 44% of people surveyed in a recent survey said that they had purchased something while under the influence in the last year. I don't right? shop unless I am drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the argument that Ryan and I make in the book is that, well, we're actually 100% of us engage in drunk shopping. Yeah. We're maybe not drunk, off of alcohol or drugs but it is uh, we're under the influence of influencers Mm. and it turns out that everyone is an influencer now because we all have these little megaphones in our pockets that are dispersing our opinions our beliefs our trends our desires onto the world
2: yeah yeah i I mean i'm guilty of post-brunch shopping i'll tell you that i've (laughs) I've become a bruncher (laughs) since i moved to dc apparently so in a literal sense and i usually buy books i Claire and I tend to wander into bookstores mm-hmm. and just buy like five or six books. So I'll, I'll definitely pick up yours next time yeah. I I have a post brunch uh, shop. Um, but I, I absolutely, you know, I, I think that that's true. I mean, we're we're addicted to models. Um, maybe it's we're intoxicated by mimetic desire. Wouldn't that's why wonder? I'm on Instagram. Yeah. All the
1: models, yeah. right? <laughs> well, wait, <laughs> literal models? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh
3: man, uh, it makes me think about. Um, I can't. Well, I can think of a couple of specific things, but I don't want to like call anyone out. But there will be something that I post on Instagram, whether yeah. it's a story or whether it's like, I don't. I post like maybe twice a year on my actual Instagram page. <laughs> right. I do stories more than anything else. But then I see other people that I follow start to mimic some of the things that like, like pictures of, uh, you know, vacation or something. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I mean, I guess it's a pretty common thing, but um, there's a couple things specifically I can think of. Again, I just don't want to call anybody out, but it makes me... Really, just be careful with what I'm putting out there. So, yeah. and, and and I know as you know, one of the minimalists, like I have a you know a little bit bigger of a following, um, but you know even those who have a much smaller following, like just really, just need to be careful with what they're putting out there because you are creating these mimetic desires with your friends and family.
1: It makes me think of that time I was in Sedona a couple of years ago, and. My desire, Sedona is so beautiful. I think it's the most beautiful place in America. Definitely top two for me, and and I had the desire to constantly reach for my phone, and try to take a picture of something, right? And of course, it never fully captures the beauty on my little iPhone. That like I don't have the lighting set up in the right time of day, etc. The, the I don't have the same artistic prowess that someone like Jordan has with respect to photography, and so I decided, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm not going to take any pictures this trip. And um, unless I, I'm going to take one picture of me and Bex, uh, a selfie, and that's it. And then I'm done for the trip. And then uh, toward the end, Ryan texts me. He's like, "I'm I like, man, this, this place we're staying is so amazing. Mm-hmm. You should see, like, the views here. And he's like – He's transferring his desires onto me. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he, w- he was like, oh, great. Send me a picture. I'm like, okay. So I went. I did a Google image search for the place I was staying. <laughs> and, of course, it's the perfect photos. And it made me realize, like, well, wait a minute. Why – why did i have that desire to take because these photos already exist a much better version of what i could do it's like i was bringing something new value to the table i wasn't enhancing the photos in some way i didn't have some new perspective that would have been great if i was a photographer it mm. would make sense hmm. but i was i could take out my phone snap a mediocre picture and send it to right it wouldn't even capture what i was trying to convey anyway but the professional pho- photos right there for free on google image search Conveyed exactly what I what I saw. Yeah,
2: yeah, but that's like your version of an NFT, right? It's your unique photos. Right? Yeah. even though there's better better ones out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Yep. part of this is, and what, what I've heard you both say is, an awareness that you know we are models for some other person. Yeah, we definitely are. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not a parent yet, but when I'm teaching in front of my my freshman students in college, and I pull out my phone on a break to start texting or look at something, sometimes I have this awareness, like they're watching everything that I do yes, and they're paying attention. And in some sense, you know, I am a model of desire for them mm-hmm. and I have to be careful about what desires, you know, I'm modeling. Mm-hmm. So, I, cause I want them to be free. Yeah. So I'm always careful about um, pushing them towards certain majors or certain careers or certain internships, because I know they ca- that they care a lot about you know, what I think and what I want. So there's a certain level of like responsibility that I feel as a potential model for those people. And I mean, you, you're both in positions where, where you have that responsibility too. But we all do, every single yeah. person, every person Absolutely. in the world has somebody that's looking to them. Yes, mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and, and people notice what we do and they especially notice it when we do something that is incongruent with the person we want to be right? Mm. Going back to the kid who sees their parent on their phone at the table, that could be the reason they want the phone in the first place. I also want to be able to check my phone while we're eating dinner because I'm addicted to that screen, right? Yeah.
3: I think with that 11-year-old, now that I'm like thinking about this a little bit more, she even brought up it's the kids at school. Like that, she sees them on their phone. And uh, yeah, I don't know. With kids, it's like as parents, you can do only so much, right? Like there's going to be other influencers yes whether they're actual influencers or they're just classmates um right they yeah they're that they're gonna have desires. so I, th- I think what you said probably was the most powerful answer josh about with a child really helping them get to the why why is it that you want that because maybe you can help them see that they are having these uh these mimetic desires mm-hmm. and and may yeah so getting to that why might help them understand what mimetic
1: desire is right yeah Without even needing to explain the word, they can understand the concept. Jamie has a question for us. Why do we want the belongings
3: of loved ones who have passed, even if there's no sentimental attachment?
1: Jamie, I think you might be lying to yourself. Mm. If Mm. there's truly no sentimental attachment to the item, then you don't want it right sentimental attachment another way to say we the item is meaningful to me in some way right Mm -hmm. and if the item is meaningful to you well you've assigned it meaning how do i know that because there is no inherent meaning within the item Mm -hmm. you didn't buy it with a certain amount of meaning inside it and now you're holding on to it until the meaning sort of dissipates uh, it doesn't expire or anything like that. Mm. We simply assign meaning to things. We can call it sentiment. We can call it sentimentality, which is just excess meaning. Mm. And, and so it seems to me that we often tell ourselves like, oh, I'm discontented by this item. I'm holding on to that thing, but I'm also at the same time assigning it meaning. And Luke, I think you might say something about, uh, well, there's a reason that we assign sentiment or meaning meaning to these items we often feel
2: as though we're supposed to do it right yeah i think that's right i mean i'm uh i have a bunch of stuff in a storage shed right now Mm. from a house that i sold uh, a few years back and i just didn't take it to dc with me when i moved to dc so there's some sentimental value in some of those things that are in the storage shed Mm. which by the way i pay 120 bucks a month for or something like that yes um because they remind me of relationships or just things from that period. And I have this sense of like fear about throwing some of that stuff away. And it's just been in the last few weeks. I'm like, what in the heck, what am I doing? It's like, it's not the things themselves that are meaningful or important to me. It's like, you know, what, what they, what they represent. And I had to like go a a layer deeper, right? It's like, no, it's the relationships with the people that those, you know, those things are related to or or whatever. So, Mm you know, they're still in the storage shed, (laughs) 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 but it's on my to do list to get in there and sift through that. Right. And separate out like, what, what do I, why do they have sentimental value? Mm. Um, And, you know, and and get to the bottom of that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's again, anything wrong with sentimentality. It's just when everything is sentimental, then nothing is really sentimental.
1: Right. And I think that's the problem we run into, right? So sentimentality just means like excess sentiment, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's fine. Yeah, if you want to heap lots of sentiment, like, I could never part with, I mean, as soon as you start saying I could never, mm-hmm. like it, it's simply saying like, well, it's my preference, mm-hmm. right? You're creating an expectation. and Yes, yeah, and, and you're, cr- you're, you're creating a sort of false sense. And of course you're making it much harder to let go. Letting go isn't something you do, it's something you stop doing you stop clinging and by the way you stop lying to yourself by the way I'm, I'm not i'm not saying that it's wrong that you're lying to yourself there's a whole chapter in love people use things about our relationship with the truth and it is a the most contentious relationship mm-hmm. it's one of the seven essential relationships in our lives that we uh, unfortunately, we lie to ourselves and we lie to others. We lie to our spouses about the money we spend or the activities we do or our desires. We do, and, and sometimes lying is direct. We might you know, we might tell a lie, and other times it's a lie of omission, right? And, and, and so we have this unfortunate relationship with the truth, and it, it really complicates our lives in a way that makes us miserable. And this, this question is actually birthed out of an honest place. It, even though there is a, a – I won't say you're being dishonest here. You're simply lying to yourself. You're not meaning to lie to me. You're saying there's no sentimental uh, – if there was no sentiment, if it meant nothing to you, you'd get rid of it because mm-hmm. your stuff means nothing to me, and I could get rid of it in a heartbeat. It means nothing to the vast majority <laughs> of everyone who's listening to this. They could get rid of it really, really quickly. By the way, if you ever want help getting rid of your stuff, ask a friend. When Ryan did his packing party for – Bringing me over there was the best thing he could have done because all the stuff that was sentimental to him was junk to me. Mm. And so I'm in the, his kitchen just with giant 50 gallon trash bags swooping things into the trash bag. Mm. Let's get rid of it because it means nothing to me. Yeah. Even though it, at the time meant something to Ryan. Now, Ryan, let's talk about that stuff now. How much does that stuff mean to you at this juncture? Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's a completely different relationship with, yeah. with those things now. I'm trying to really relate to Jamie's question here. I can't think of a situation where I wanted someone's relatives or or, a relative
1: who has passed their belongings that didn't have sentiment,
3: unless it was functional. You know what I'm
1: saying? That's a good point. Uh, In fact, I I think that's a phenomenal – so there are two reasons you would want it. Right. It's functional. Right. But then you don't have any meaning sort of tied up in it. Mm -hmm. If my mom left her couch and I just used it as a couch because it was a fine couch, Mm -hmm. that's fine. Mm -hmm. But when it came time to replace the couch, if there's no sentiment, it's – All right, it's gone. It'd be easy to replace. Yes. Yeah. 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 Let's wrap up this episode, Luke, by talking about what do the minimalists really want? So, Ryan, do you have any sort of desire that uh, you've you've carried for a long time? I'll give you an example of mine, give you a moment to sort of think about something. Ever since I was a teen, I got my first car. I've always wanted an old school Range Rover truck. (laughs) And even today, like a 1989 town and country, and I could afford it. Um, in fact they're strangely more expensive now than they were when I, in the late mid 90s when I was turned 16 mm. and and I could afford one now but I also know like it's a it, and, and there are a few reasons that I want it I think but maybe you can help me unpack it maybe f- help me find the desire behind the desire I think it's the most beautiful car there is so I, it, I think it's a, a sort of a, a work of art on wheels in fact it is just that, unfortunately. They're notoriously unreliable. The, the joke for the longest time about Range Rovers is you know, they, they leak on the sales lot. You know, they leak oil on the sales lot. And so I think it's a beautiful piece of art. And I, I enjoy that. But for some reason, I want to have it and use it. And it it's different from like a Picasso painting. I really enjoy Picasso painting. Go to LACMA and see the Picasso painting. It's great, but I don't have that same desire to sort of take it home mm. with me.
2: Well, it's not accessible, right? I don't know if you if you could oh. afford to buy a Picasso painting. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So that's that's one difference is that you could buy a Range Rover, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, but you haven't pulled the trigger, right? Yet, yeah. Uh, yet. My <laughs> question would be. You know, you've described these objective qualities about a Range Rover, like oh. the aesthetics. You probably know some of the specs, right? Yeah. But is there a model of desire for that? At some point in your life, was there, like, a person who drove a Range Rover that you can name yeah. um, that may have affected your desire for that specific
1: car? Was there a musician? I'm trying to think, like— Oh, I'm sure. I, I, so I in, in the 90s, I was so into hip-hop, and everyone was driving Range, Range Rovers in the 90s. So, yeah, yeah. Th- there's probably some—that's— There's that. That's, probably contributes to at least some percentage of it and maybe even a high percentage of it. Yeah. Yeah,
3: man. Yeah. For me, I'm like trying to rack my brain. I remember like the very first crush on a girl I ever had. It was because my best friend had a crush on her and I never saw her as attractive. Wow. But all of a sudden he was like, Oh yeah, Sarah, man, she's really pretty. And I wish she could be my girlfriend. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, I wish that could be my girlfriend. But still, like, never really saw her super attractive. But you know, because I wanted to be friends with my buddy, oh. I wanted to desire what he desired. Same thing with like, I used to have a trapper keeper, trapper keeper, yeah, classic. With uh, like a, lam- a
1: sponsor of the show. <laughs> 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 Is
3: that a brand name? I think yeah. yeah. Actually, oh, uh, um, trapper keeper with like a picture of a Lamborghini on it. And I remember looking at that Lamborghini <laughs> and thinking, oh, maybe one day. Or like, you play? Do um, you ever play mash? Um, okay, so it's it's so. Um, mash is basically this game where it's kind of a fortune telling game. So mash stands for like mansion, apartment, shack, and house. Okay. And so then you have these little subcategories where you're listing out like your perfect partner, your perfect job, or, or not your perfect job, but your uh, a bunch of different partners, a bunch of different jobs, and then you just kind of play this game. And you cross things off the list slowly and, until you finally you 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 know by. Uh, a random number Uh you are going to end up with a mansion an apartment a shack or a house and i'm thinking like of all the things that i wrote down but it was always about having this prestigiousness but none of those really carried into well i should say past my corporate days and i've been able to leave all that behind the one thing i desire right now more than anything is a tesla and i'll tell you i know exactly why it's because it drives itself Like that, for me, in fact, the car that Mariah and I uh, bought about a year ago, 2016 RAV4, it has some kind of like, you know, smart system where like if you're, you know, someone's up next to you or if you cross over the line a little bit, like it has these little alerts. Which I thought was going to be awesome. But now, like, the alerts just drive me freaking crazy, especially when I'm parking. It's like, I know how close I am to that. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah, I, I'm really trying to rack my brain here for something that's carried
1: into, you know, into my life right now that I desire, that I can't really figure out. Um, you know, the Tesla thing is funny because I'm such a control freak. I, it's the opposite. Like, I don't want anyone else to drive me. <laughs> I, I don't even want you know, Elon Musk's robots to drive me. Yeah. And for me, like, that's the the tesla is appealing for other reasons i think it's aesthetically pleasing i i think the uh, the the environmental impact etc uh also like you know it's uh, it looks different from other things so like i want to be unique just like everyone else yeah and Uh, i i may end up getting a tesla one day and i'm not gonna like beat myself up for that but
3: what i do know is that that tesla isn't going to make me complete Right, That Tesla isn't going to make me happy per se. It's just going to fulfill that desire. And I kind of like rue the day when I actually get a Tesla because that's right now my object day. Object day is the thing that you desire. You feel like you bring into your life. It's going to complete you and you won't ever want anything again. And that is my object day. Like I feel like that's really the only thing that I want. But I know as soon as I bring that into my life, let's say, Josh, you gifted me a Tesla today. Yes, I'm excited. I got the Tesla in the not too distant future. There's going to be another object day. Yes. There's going to be something else that I desire. Um, the only other thing that has come to mind when it comes to desires uh, that's carried through just from a, a kid until now is uh, traveling. But I don't really see. I don't. I don't know. Maybe there,
1: I don't see an, an issue with that because that's uh, it's, it's more of an
3: experience-based
1: thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really see an issue with any of it. It's. Uh, it becomes an issue for me if I need to acquire a right. thing. Yeah. 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 Any, any final thoughts on that, Lou?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the desire is, um, is a mystery. Mm. Oh. You know, it, it's, it's a mystery, and we always want to figure it out. So while it's good to kind of get to the bottom of our desires, there are always going to be some desires that, you know, we'll never be able to fully understand. Mm. And in a certain sense, all desire is kind of about transcendence you know, de- desire by its very nature is kind of, you know, wanting something a little bit beyond where we're currently at. And, you know, human life, you know, is ultimately, there's a, it's a mystery, right? Mm. And I think we've got to be okay with that. So while I think it's good to probe where our desires come from to try to understand them a little bit better, we also have to recognize our, our limits, right? Yes. Like there are some things that I want right now uh because i'm a memetic person and i can't tell you exactly like why i want them i mean i want to live on a farm with horses and clydesdales and like you know i have some some ideas about why i've lived in cities my whole life and everything but i'll probably like have a farm and then like regret not being able to walk to cool restaurants as soon as i move there or something like that Mm, right right. so yeah you know we're uh we're we're funny creatures sometimes and I think, you know, we, we it's it's good to, to think seriously about why we want things, um, but ultimately realizing that desire just comes down to the sense of openness that we have as human beings to other people mm. and to the world around us, and that's really beautiful.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's great. Mm. Well, we can encourage folks to check out your book. It's called Wanting. We'll yep. put a link to it in the show notes. Awesome. Where else should we send folks to – are you on social media? I'm on all the social media. All right. <laughs> uh, and, and LukeBurgess.com. Okay. Yep. Beautiful. LukeBurgess.com. Yeah. I assume they can find the book there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I want to acknowledge you, brother. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having Amen. me, on, guys. Appreciate it. And thank you, patrons. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Bye.
0: Friends been asking where Amanda's been. They said she seemed like such a perfect ten. Asked me when I was gonna take her home to Cleveland. She was just your type, dark hair and with the green brown eyes, real smart and she cleaned up nice. They asked me why. Said if you really need a reason, well, I'm looking for a perfect spot. I drive a Civic.